I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Corey Trivelletti, the Chief Marketing Officer for Voicera. Voicera is a technology company that's created an AI called Eva, and you can invite Eva to meetings and she records, identifies action items, and helps you really just through the minutia of following up from meetings with your attendees, your prospects, and just keeping yourself organized. Before Voicera, Corey was head of marketing for Oracle's Data Cloud, which was partly through an acquisition of his prior company, Blue Kai. Before that, he's been on the agency side or an ad guy, as he self-proclaims. And he's written a column for media posts over the last 18 years, since 2000, every week on Wednesdays. Having had a prior conversation with Corey, I found the conversation fascinating and, and his insights really unique in the realm of space of how to build teams, what's important for the structure of teams. And I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Corey Trivelletti. Corey, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me. So let's start off and, and tell us a little bit about your background and your path to CMO at Voicera. Sure. So I've been doing 
a lot in the digital marketing, digital media, digital advertising space since basically 1994 and 1995. Originally, I got into this business as an ad guy. I helped start a couple of different digital ad agencies that were pretty successful, worked on a lot of really great brands, and was trying to lay a lot of the foundation for how people would use this medium as an advertising vehicle. Uh, then after I got out of the advertising side of things, I went and started a consultancy, a company called Catalyst SF where we worked on a lot of venture-backed ad tech companies, as well as doing digital strategy for larger brands like Del Monte Foods and some other companies in there. Uh, and then I got out of consulting and I went in-house. So I ended up being the CMO and overseeing marketing for a company called Blue Kai. And Blue Kai was the first DMP and the first data exchange and data marketplace for advertising and marketing purposes. So it had utilized a lot of my knowledge around advertising and marketing. And we built that business up and then successfully sold that as an exit to Oracle, where we started the Oracle Data Cloud. And the Oracle Data Cloud was where I spent three and a half years going out talking to marketers around how they can be more data-driven and how they can use data properly. And I left that business about six months ago after we had successfully scaled it through acquisitions and organic growth to now be the CMO for Voicera, which is in the AI space and virtual assistants. So you've had this mix of startups and big companies. How does marketing differ based on the stage of company you've been in? It differs quite a bit. I've learned along the way different tips and tricks and best practices for different stages of companies. And I can tell you that even in the last six months, I've re-undertaken what I call a mastercraft in marketing and understanding how marketing can be a blunt instrument at some times, or it can be a very finely tuned instrument at others. There are times when marketing in a brand new category is about changing customers' habits and consumers' habits. And you, you employ a, a lot of different tactics than you would if you were at the stage where you're a very mature business and you're trying to do iterative change and you're trying to iteratively grow the ROI from your marketing campaigns. And at that point, you're very much a finely tuned instrument and you're going and you're just trying to increase 0.5% here and 0.6% here versus maybe the early stages where everything you're trying to do is a series of singles and doubles with the occasional home run, which is going to have a 25 or 30% increase in your ROI. So there's a lot of different tactics and tips and tricks you have to use at different stages of a business. So what have you learned or what do you think others can apply? I mean, those are two different, obviously different cases, right? Big yeah. company versus small company. Yeah. Well, I think what, what I've learned along the way is that at the core of everything, you do have to think about two key elements. You have to think about what's your story. So what's your positioning? What's the story you're trying to tell? And then you've got to think about content. You've got to think about and, and this is something that I learned from another CMO who I forgot where I heard it specifically, but they had said the idea is to identify your key story, your core component messaging, and then figure out 150 ways to tell that exact same story. And so that's where the content development comes into key, to play, where you identify what's that core message and the different ways you want to present that message. And then you figure out content and thought leadership and other pieces of information that help to support that. Once you've got the message and you've got the content in play, then you try to figure out the different channels for how to distribute that. And in doing so, you have to figure out the personas of the people you want to try and speak to. How are they utilizing different forms of media? Where is that message going to intersect with them? And where is it potentially going to resonate with them? So that's where you start thinking about things like distribution of messaging through social. You start thinking about SEO and SEM. Potentially, you think about things like affiliates and ambassador strategies and influencer strategies. You work your way up to doing paid efforts. For a startup versus a large company, you have to reprioritize all those different channels. And it, it's really interesting. It becomes a craft. It becomes something that 
you really have to pay a lot of deep attention to, and you've got you've got to spend time learning it and realizing that you're going to make mistakes along the way. And I think that depending on what state of business you're in, if it's a startup or a big company, you're afforded the opportunity to test and to learn and to maybe make mistakes or not. Well, so the story or your message is pretty important. And I think, I think this relates. We were talking before and you mentioned this kind of universal approach you'd gotten from a CMO, I think at Intel. A number of years ago, could you share that and and you know how you see that driving either your story um, or the content that you're building? Yeah, you know I think that what you do is you should always be learning. I think that's extremely important. And I try to learn by going and talking to other marketers. So a couple of years ago, I had a chance just for a few minutes to talk to the CMO of Intel, and what he had said, which really resonated with me, which I've used, was that at Intel. They didn't want to talk about Intel. They wanted to talk about what Intel made possible. And that was a really unique construct that I liked and that I wanted to go think through and I wanted to apply to the businesses that that I was working on. So I can tell you in my previous life within Oracle and the Oracle Data Cloud, we had a lot of trouble trying to get customer case studies. We had a lot of difficulties in getting customers to specifically talk about how they were using us and how they're using our data because no one really wanted to go out and talk about how they utilize data for targeting. So we tried this whole angle where we went to our customers and said, let's not talk about us. Let's not talk about the data. Let's talk about what the data makes possible. And that opened up a whole area of opportunity for us to go and engage with our customers. And what we ended up doing was we laid a a challenge in front of our team and we said, how can you go out and get 50 customer videos in 50 days and not ask them about us but and not ask them about data, but ask them about what data makes possible. And previously, we had five customer case studies in three years, and then we ended up getting 50 customer case studies on video in 50 days. Wow. We found it was a lot easier for people to talk about what, made, what data made possible for them versus talking about us. And coincidentally, as they were talking about what data made possible, they started talking about us. And so okay. we didn't ask the question, but we ended up there. And that's something that I found was really, really useful. And I've used that same line with companies I've advised. And even in our current world where we're talking about virtual assistants, we're talking about AI, you know, AI itself is kind of a scary topic. People get weirded out by it. So what we do is we don't try to talk about AI. We talk about what AI makes possible. And it's just a lot easier to get people to, to think and to talk and to brainstorm around the things it makes possible rather than that specific topic in and of itself. It's almost a simple way of looking at the difference between product marketing and benefits marketing. You don't need to talk about the product. You want to talk about the benefits of the product because that's more relatable to the individual. I mean, 50 customer interviews in 50 days, and you know, I'm imagining that they were much more passionate than they would be if they were just oriented around talking about you, but they were talking about what makes it possible. That's impressive. I, I lucked out. I had an amazing team and they really embraced it and they looked at this as a challenge. And then they were very aggressive in trying to figure out, well, where are our customers going to be? So we would go to where our customers were. We'd go to their offices. We'd go to events where we knew they were going to be. And we just started asking this question. And it was like the dam opened up. People just wanted to talk and they wanted to extend their information about this. And it was it was actually a lot of fun. 
Yeah, I've I've applied a similar. I've never applied it like that, but I've applied a similar concept of really focusing in on how solutions benefit customers, especially in, as it relates to you know developing your value proposition. And it, I think it's hugely important in any industry, but in B two B industries in particular, I think you know talking about the benefits and and how you're actually benefiting them in dollars and cents if you can get there has a huge huge value. Yeah, you know what's actually it's really interesting about that statement too is it's really difficult especially in b2b but both b2b and b2c it's really difficult to stay on that path you know i think we all come into it saying we need to talk about benefits but inevitably what happens is that you start talking about features and you start talking about speeds and feeds and all that information that people start asking questions about and it's you have to actually stay on point you have to stay focused on that benefit messaging and you have to fight the desire to get into the granularity too early. That doesn't mean you're not going to get there. Eventually you have to get there, especially in a B2B environment where it comes down to marking checks on a checklist. People want to know if you can do X, Y, and Z before they make that investment. But the more that you can focus and you can talk about the benefits, the more closely related you are to the emotional side of the decision-making process. And if you can get someone to emotionally say, yes, I want to do this, then it becomes significantly easier to sell the features of the product later. You want that emotional switch to be turned on. Very smart, very smart. Well, so also another point in prior conversation we had, you mentioned this passion about being truly genuine and authentic in the way you represent your brand. And I I wanted to ask you, one, what did you mean by that for everyone that's listening? Um, And then maybe you can elaborate a little bit. Yeah. So another thing I had learned a long time ago by talking to somebody else, and I really learn a lot by talking to other people. I don't think that I'm smart enough to come up with this stuff on my own. I think I'm pretty good at applying it. But the conversation had been that you always want to make sure that the promise of the experience matches the actual experience. And the promise of the brand matches the experience of that brand. And that means you have to be honest about what it is that you represent. And that means being genuine and being authentic. And if you're trying to sell something like sneakers, right? You can't go out there and say, these sneakers are going to make you the fastest human being on the planet. (laughs) You might get somebody to buy those sneakers, but it's not going to be true. And the negative implications of the uh, the impact on your brand are going to show, and eventually you're going to be completely out of the market. Now, on the flip side, you don't want to completely under-promise because then you'll never get anybody to that emotional hook. You'll never get them to actually want to try your brand or your product or your service. And so that balance that you want to try and strike about being very genuine, being authentic, but also being excited, that's an art form. And that's something that really has to be thought through. And when you think about the positioning and when you think through the messaging that you're trying to portray from your brand, you've got to be honest and you've got to say what you are capable of delivering. And then you have to go talk to the customers and make sure that they actually experience that same promise coming to fruition. If you can do that, then you strike a chord and once again, you get towards that emotional benefit of your brand or your product or your service. And so there's a lot of time that goes into saying, is this what we actually do? Is this how we want to represent ourselves? You know, What are the benefits of working with us? How do we want our brand to be perceived? What's the tone and what's the feel and what's the way that we present ourselves? And even go so far as to say, in what environments do you want to propose ourselves and so on and so forth? I think those are really, really important to me. Well, what motivated you down this path of authenticity and being genuine, I guess in the brand space, but you know, what, where did that come from? Years of therapy. 
<laughs> yes, yeah, I can. I can only imagine. Tell me yeah. more. <laughs> well, you know, anybody who's honest will tell you that they probably had to talk through their issues at some point in their lives. You know, I've talked with business coaches and life coaches for many, many years, and I've also worked with people who, the, the best people I've worked with, had a, a level of humility that I found extremely uh, enticing. You know, the people who are comfortable saying what they're good at as well as what they're not good at. And those people I find are the most fun to work with because they surround themselves with people who are complimentary and they're not afraid to walk into a room and surround themselves with people who are significantly smarter than them because you recognize what you're good at and what you're not good at versus the people who they like to be the smartest person in the room. They want to tell everybody they're the smartest person in the room. You know, I, those people are less interesting to me. So for me, that humility element has been a really enticing characteristic of the people that I work with. And I find that that kind of goes hand in hand with being genuine and being authentic because nobody is perfect. Nobody is perfectly, perfectly set to do everything. Nobody has all the skills that are required to be successful. They have to be able to look at themselves objectively and say what they're good at and what they're not. And so for me, earlier in my career, I was probably lacking in any kind of humility, probably extraordinarily arrogant about what my skill sets were. And you know, there was a level of success there, but I found that as I started to grow and mature and being more honest about what I was good at and what I was not good at, and then making sure that I surrounded myself with those people who were complimentary, I found, I found that I could be more successful that way. And I feel like that's a really good, honest way to operate. And I think that if you portray yourself that way to other people, you also end up with a significantly more uh, emotional connection with people. I think people want to talk to people who are willing to admit who they really are and to, who are willing to be genuine. If you're putting on airs, it's hard to relate to somebody because they're always pretending to be perfect. And so I think that that recognition from a personal perspective is something that has applied really well in a business environment. And it's made me select people that I want to work with. It's hopefully put me in a position to be more successful than if I was being significantly more arrogant and putting on those airs. And also, it just makes it that these are the people I want to work with, and these are the environments that I want to work with, and this is how I want to represent the brands that I work on. Well, I, I find it fascinating, and I, I'm going to get in trouble with my friends that work in technology, but I, for whatever reason, business, I don't think, fosters humility, and technology folks inside of business, I think, have an equal double dose, and I don't know if it's, you know, we have chips on our shoulders, and we're trying to make it and hustle really hard. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's interesting that, that this notion of humility is you know, something you found and, and are yeah. beginning to nurture. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Well, then I'll tell you too, just to go on a tangent for that for a second, yeah. there's been a couple of books that I've read. Um, they talk about ego. And, you know, if you, if you read about these things, I, I'm blanking right now on one of the books, but these two Navy SEALs wrote a book around how ego is literally the worst possible thing to get in the way of everything that, that shapes success for you. Yeah. And they talked about it in a business environment. And they also talked about it in the military environment where if you were entering into some situation that was literally life-threatening, your ego is the thing that would get you killed because you would walk into that environment and say, I'm going to be able to overcome this no matter what, versus being honest and saying, I need something to overcome this situation. Let's go figure out what that is and let's get that quickly. <laughs> and I find that in a business environment, it's the same thing. Like your ego is usually what creates, creates problems. If you walk into a room and you start an argument with somebody, it's probably because your ego was stepping up to the plate. Right. And I find the more that your ego can take a back seat and you can look at situations and challenges from a, an intelligence-based perspective and a perspective of being genuine and authentic about the situation, you're going to end up being more successful and you're going to have a longer-term success. Well, bringing up SEAL teams in particular, it leads me to talent and thinking about talent. How does this, this notion impact your hiring or, or general talent decisions, how you build your teams? Mm-hmm. Well, I think with building a team, you have to look for those characteristics in people. And so in an interview process, you have to ask the kinds of questions that will extract a view of their personality characteristics. You have to understand what they see of themselves when they walk into a room. And there's questions you can ask and without going into specific questions, but there's questions you can throw out there that say, all right, if you were posed with challenge X or Y and you didn't have the information but you were being put on the spot in a room, how would you answer? And you can see almost not just in the way they respond to the question verbally, but also from their body language. If you put somebody in an uncomfortable situation, not literally uncomfortable, like you have them sit on a chair that has three legs on it, but put them in a situation and say, look, a customer is asking you question X, Y, and Z, and they need to know right now, how do you answer? And you put them in a position to try and figure out the answer on the spot. The way they answer that is indicative of what their level of humility versus ego is. If they will try to answer the question and make it up on the go versus being honest and say, I don't have the answer to that question. I'm going to have to get back to you. And then ask them, who are they going to go talk to to get that answer? That that gives gives you an idea of what their approach to a similar situation might be. Mm. So in the interview process, it's just really good to try and figure out what, how they tackle those kinds of questions. There's also a second thing is just asking them those questions like, you know, who did they have the most difficulty working with in previous roles? You know, what positions were they? And how did you deal with those situations? Or what was an uncomfortable position that you were put in in the past? And how did you handle that? Also, you know, on the converse of that, what was one of the biggest successes that you had? And who do you attribute that success to? And just see if they start to take all the credit or if they're complementary to people that they worked with, if they understood the benefits of a team environment versus you know, sole contributors and individual contributors. There's a lot of ways to unpack that in an interview process. Interesting. Well, so, you know, we're talking about this notion of a culture and teams that are driven by ideas versus ego. How does, how does that environment work? I mean, if you're constructing it, think about the process, people, all kinds of things. Like, Give me an example of how you set, set this up. Well, there's definitely no silver bullet to this. There's no perfect environment. I think it has to start with the leadership team right off the bat. You have to look at the CEO of the team and you have to look at the rest of the executives on the team. And you have to say objectively, what do they lead with? Do they lead with ego or do they lead with intelligence? That's the first thing. Um, then from a process perspective, you have to also make sure that you have the, the, the right balance 
of review and approval with empowerment and authorization. You have to empower the teams to be able to make decisions. And a process has to be in place where there's some checks and balances. But once again, they have to be allowed to make their decisions and have those decisions potentially be wrong. If you empower the teams to make those decisions and really be cognizant of whether they can be right or wrong, you're creating a much more balanced environment and the kind of culture where people are going to be willing to take risks. People are going to be willing to feel invested or able to feel invested in the decision-making process. Whereas if it's a very authoritarian environment where everything has to get approved from the top down, you're not empowering anybody and the culture is going to suffer from that because you're basically taking all humility out of the equation and making it all around the ego of the executive team. Right. Um, so I think that's one thing that you have to kind of keep in mind. Other things I would say, people are probably going to talk about very flat organizations or they're going to talk about organizations where it's very balanced from maybe sales and marketing or product and sales, et cetera. You know, all that is sort of subject to the team. I think the team is significantly the most important element of that. You can set up any kind of culture and process and incentives and organizational structures you want, but the people that you have and their approach to the business and their balance of ego and humility is going to define the way that business has grown. Right. One of the, I think, the hardest things that I've heard executives talk about is this notion that you brought up, which is allowing a team to fail. Um, Mm -hmm. Have you learned any way to to psychologically get over the that fear of failure yeah i'm just i'm just curious if you've had any thoughts around that you know also a very difficult question i think from a very young age we're told to not take chances and we're told to not fail to not make mistakes and as you get into business especially when you start getting further on in your career and you're working at maybe a public company or you're working at a company that has very clear stages of growth that it's trying to achieve. And you're afraid to make those mistakes because you don't want to get set backwards. I think what you have to do is you've got to put in place some of those checks and balances. And I'll tell you, at Blue Kai, one of the things that I thought was great and one of the things that I've appreciated as my career has gone forward was when we had our team meetings every other week. And this was a team meeting that would last two hours, but we would go through all the challenges and all the decisions that were made for the previous two weeks. So we would cross-pollinate any of the learning that came out of those decisions. So what happened was we might make mistakes, but what we did is we learned and we quickly shared the information so that we didn't make the same mistake again. And I think that might be where businesses fall down is if they don't figure out how to share the learnings from those mistakes, then they're doomed to repeat them. If you are learning from them, then what happens is you don't make the same mistake again. It's okay to make new ones because you want to, there's there's a whole school of thought, right? Fail fast and fail often. Some people subscribe to that. Some people don't. Whether I subscribe to that or not is irrelevant. The point is that you want to make sure that you're failing, but you're learning from it, and then you don't keep failing in the same position. If you keep failing from the same position, then you're going to be in trouble. But I don't think that has to be the case. I think you can continue to learn new things and new tricks along the way and make different failures and learn from those. And hopefully, you get to a point where they've added up to something that's been been quite successful. Smart advice, smart advice. So I want to switch gears a little bit because we didn't mention at the top of the show that you also write a weekly column for Media Post. And I was checking them out and the recent one was labeled the future of AI, just watch your kids. 
And I thought it would be fun for you to share what you observed with the use of AI and your kids and tell us about that because I I thought it was fascinating as I read it and we'll link to it in the show notes for sure. So I have been, or I've been writing a weekly column for them every Wednesday for 18 years and I've never missed a Wednesday (laughs) and I've doubled up on the topic either. I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah, I would be proud of that too. (laughs) So that topic has been fun just because this is the space, this is the category that I'm operating in now. And uh, for Christmas, we got my kids Alexas for their room. And we have one downstairs in my house. And they were talking to it. They would play Jeopardy with it or they would ask it to tell it a joke. And so that was kind of fun. But we wanted to put it in their rooms because we wanted them to be able to listen to music in their rooms. But it's interesting because to some extent, we almost kind of wish we didn't put it in their rooms at this point. (laughs) They're constantly talking to this device. They're constantly asking it information. They're constantly asking it to play new music. My kids have exploded in terms of discovery of so many different topics, especially around music, because they'll sit in their rooms and ask Alexa questions. And they will ask it to tell it jokes. And they'll ask it for the definition of certain words. And they'll ask it to play songs. And they'll ask it to play games now. And they talk to it like it's an imaginary friend. You know, when I was growing up, you had an imaginary friend that you might have talked to once in a while, but it didn't talk back. At least no one else could hear it. And now my kids are constantly in their rooms talking to the devices and it talks back to them. And this is just the way it works for them. You know, they come down to the television and they push a button, they talk to the TV and tell it what show they want. And they tell the the Alexa downstairs to turn on the lights or to play a song. They're just used to the machines being able to understand what they what they ask it. And it's fascinating. It's just fascinating to see them engage with technology in this way, in such a way that I never would have anticipated they would have adopted it so quickly. Well, so Alexa is really defining reality in some ways with your kids. I mean, where, where do you think that that's going to go? I, I think it's, it's super interesting. Uh, there was a piece that we wrote, that I wrote recently, which talked about how we are at this tipping point, where to date... If you wanted to engage with computers and machines, you had to learn the language of computers and machines. You had to learn the user interfaces for the programs and the software that you wanted to work with. If you want to step step lower into that, you had to go learn programming languages to get it to do things that you wanted. But we're at this tipping point now where with voice and with AI, that the machines understand what you tell it. So it's learning our language. You You no longer need to learn its language. And that's a big deal because my kids are going to grow up in a world where they'll tell the car where to go and they're going to tell the refrigerator what to buy and they're going to tell the machine what song to play and they're going to tell the TV what show to record. And this is just the way things are going to be for them. They don't have to learn a UI. My kids have iPads and for now, they're totally fine going in and swiping and pushing buttons and getting things to be that happened for them, but it's only a couple of years away from, they may not have to touch that screen all day. They're just going to talk to it and tell it what they want to do. They're going to play video games and say, go left or go right, or do whatever they're going to do. Like the Xbox environment they play on right now, when they play Madden, they're going to say, you know, 444 soft side blitz versus actually selecting it with the controller. You know, they're going to have complete autonomy to talk to the machine. And I just think that's really, really interesting. And it's going to understand what they have to say. So we're at the very early stages of that, but this is the environment my kids are going to grow up in. It's fascinating. Fascinating. Well, so stepping back, I always like to get to know the person I'm talking to a little bit better and, and deeper. One of the questions I love asking is, is there 
some experience in your life that you think has defined who you've become? Mm. So I would say there's probably a couple things. There's you, you're defined by so many things that happen in your life, but I would say, I you know my my motivating factor is that early on I glimpsed the person that I'm capable of becoming, and maybe have been that person for certain points of my life and certain days or certain times. And my whole goal is to be that person more often. And I find that as you get older and you you gain some wisdom, hopefully you're going to continue to gain more. But as you gain some wisdom, then you start to glimpse that person more often. And I think you know getting married helped with that. I think having kids helped with that. I think that progressing in my career helped with that. Um, I think that all of those elements, they enable you to understand the ramifications of you being the best version of you on a regular basis. And while it's hard to be that person, I think that um, you select the people you work with, you select the people that you spend time with, you select the things that you put your time and your energy into, and they all continue to shape who you are. And that that whole process is a fun process. And that's the thing that's going to keep going until you're 99 years old, which I probably will be 99 years old and I'll be completely senile. <laughs> my kids and my wife are going to be looking at me saying, what is he talking about? But it'll be a fun process to get there. I love that. So, it, so there's this notion in that answer of these moments of, I call it humanity, right? Things mm -hmm. that really connect us to being human beings. And then this active curation of mm -hmm. your environment and the situations you put yourself in to create more humanity. That's interesting to me. Yeah. I, I've also referred to it as a, a series of epiphanies. <laughs> yeah. You look through life and you go, oh, wait, or aha, that made sense. Right. And those right. are the things you try to replicate over time. Interesting. Interesting. Well, thank you for that. And so what, what drives you? What fuels you day to day? Just trying to be that better version of me. I think I even wrote that. It's like my Twitter handle. It's just trying to be the better version of me more often than I than I used to be. That is really what fuels me. Like I I like challenges. I I don't like being bored. And I, it's funny. It's as much as I like routines, I don't like things being the same. So I want the ability for them to change, but to change in a way that is beneficial and fun. So you know, going and drive, dropping back into a startup and working on a brand new category that hasn't been worked on in the past. You know, th this is fun. This is interesting. I could have kept doing exactly what I was doing and been very successful and enjoyed it, but I like the challenge of trying something different. So are there brands or companies or maybe even causes that you follow you think other people should be taking notice of? You know, there's definitely companies and brands and causes. I think it's it, there's the standard answer where people will point to companies like Apple or they'll point to companies like Amazon and say they're very, very successful. You know, I think that a company like Tesla is really interesting just because they're trying to do so many different things. And maybe I'm confusing Tesla with Elon Musk, but they're doing so many different things. You know, I like, there's a brand that I like a lot, Shinola, mm -hmm. which is a Detroit brand, which, you know, they started making watches and they started making leather goods and they started making bicycles and things that don't really have any association with one another, but they decided they wanted to make that product and they wanted to make it better. And I think that those kinds of things are really interesting to me. So I'm a fan of that brand and brands that are like it. And it's interesting because we live in a world where you can start a brand from scratch now and you can achieve a level of success if you know how to get your brand out there. And back to that earlier point from a little while ago, if it's authentic and it's genuine mm. and it presents itself in a way that truly resonates with an audience. If you if you can do that, then you can be pretty successful at developing something. It may not be a brand that takes over the world, 
but within a niche and within a category and within an audience, it can be extremely successful and it can be extremely positively uh, reviewed. Nice. Well, last question for you. Where do you think marketing is going to go in the future? You know, I think marketing is, I think the distribution of messages is going to get easier. And I think that's counter to what a lot of people think as media continues to fragment. I think you having very clear winners, like in the digital world, you win with Google and Facebook at this point. They give you the audience. I think in a television environment, there's a few players that you win with. Um, I think when you go to outdoor, there's a few players that you win with. So I think the distribution of the message, that part is actually going to be relatively easy. I think the hard part is to go back to that storytelling component. And at core, I like the balance of storytelling and analytics. And I think that analytics has become significantly more robust and more important for a marketer. But it's the analytics around that story and the ability to balance both. And I think that as a marketer, if you can't do both well, you're probably not going to be leading the pack. You're not going to be in charge. You have to be able to foster both of those skills very, very well. So I think that's where things are going to go. I think it's going to go back to the ability to understand a story and to develop a creative message, but you've got to be able to look at the data and quickly understand if it was proven accurate or not, and if it worked or not. And that that message better be genuine. It better be authentic and it better resonate. Corey, thank you so much for coming on the show today. No problem. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Marketing Today is brought to you by Atomic. Atomic focuses on unleashing the growth potential for clients we serve. Atomic is a strategic consultancy specializing in business, marketing, brand, and innovation. Our singular goal is to help you accelerate your efforts with the right mix of expertise, analysis, and creativity. Check us out at atomic.com. A-T-O-M-C-K.com. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with project management by Sarah Williams, audio production by Aaron Campbell, writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. We love to hear from listeners at info at atomic, A-T-O-M-C-K dot com. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.